you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Among the countless ethnicities and nationalities that have immigrated to the United States over the years, one of the most common points of origin, especially since the beginning of the so-called Second Industrial Revolution in the late 1800s, has been the various countries in Eastern Europe. One of these is the Austro-Hungarian Empire, with the first wave of Hungarian immigration coming between the years of 1890 and the outbreak of World War I in 1914. One of these immigrants was Joseph Gedeon. He had come to the United States in 1907, and soon he had both met and married another Hungarian immigrant named Mary Karatsoki. With Mary's hand had come a a modest dowry, and to this small sum, Joseph added an income produced by a succession of odd jobs. Over the next few years, the Gedeons had two daughters, first Ethel in 1912, followed by Veronica, also known as Ronnie, in 1917. While the rest of the country, and, indeed, eventually much of the world, was sliding into the Great Depression and almost chronic poverty for the next decade, the Gedeons were doing moderately well. Not only did they have two children, in 1929 they moved into a rundown brownstone on the east side of Manhattan at 240 East 53rd Street. Joseph opened up an upholstery shop nearby, Around the same time, the then 17-year-old Ethel married a cab driver by the name of Louis Grimecki. However, the marriage was to prove to last less than, less than 24 hours, with the marriage being annulled after Grimecki failed to, um, perform on their wedding night. Ethel soon returned to the home, and Louis Grimecki was to commit suicide a year later. Shortly after Ethel's marriage to Grimecki fell apart, She began going to secretarial school, and eventually became secretary to Helen Brown Norden, editor of Vanity Fair and mistress of the magazine's publisher, Condé Nast. After they had moved into the brownstone, the Gedeons began to take on boarders in a basement room to help make ends meet. In October 1932, their boarder was a short-order cook named Chuck Smith. He arranged with the Gedeons to share his lodgings with an acquaintance of his, a dishwasher by the name of Robert Irwin. Sure, they said, Smith could do that. However, after living there only a week, Irwin was hospitalized and moved out. Tensions were escalating between Joseph and his younger daughter, Veronica. A more conservative old school 
old-school European, he disapproved of the way Ronnie carried on. He felt she went out with boys too much and started to complain about this rotten American system where children laugh at their parents and start running wild before they cut their teeth. For her part, Ronnie saw her father as weak and irresponsible with his money. By 1933, tensions had escalated enough that, eager to get out of the house, she followed in the footsteps of her elder sister, and at the age of 16, married a local boy named Bobby Flower. And like her sisters, this marriage was not to last, though to be fair it did last a bit longer. But it too was annulled, and by 1934 she was back home. She soon began studying to become a beautician, but this in turn lasted only a few months before she became bored and dropped out. She accompanied her sister to one of Helen Norton's parties, and here she made contacts to kickstart her career as a model. While she aimed to one day become a more legitimate fashion model, she took whatever jobs came her way. These were often, shall we say, less than on the up and up. She routinely posed for artists, and also for photo shoots in the te detective and true crime magazines so popular during the era of the Pops. In these magazine shoots, she nearly without fail played the part of the scantily clad victim-to-be menaced by the criminal of the week. Her career increased tensions with her father still further, and Mary Gedeon took part in the, in the rows as well. But Joseph Gedeon was disheartened to find that, rather than side with him in berating their wayward daughter, she defended Ronnie. Eventually, Joseph had had enough and moved out of the house, taking up residence in a small apartment behind his upholstery shop. It was shortly after this that Robert Irwin reappeared at the Gedeon house to see about boarding there. Once again, however, he moved out shortly thereafter. In November 1935, Ronnie Gedeon was at a party thrown by the New York Society of Illustrators and the Heckscher Theater at 104th Street and 5th Avenue. The party was soon to become notorious in the New York press, since it ended up being raided by the police after an employee complained. The quote-unquote performers were all performing nude or nearly so. Ronnie managed to talk her way out of being charged by the police. Five others, Cyrilla Bell, Inez Gregerstein, Colette Nix, Robbie Senton, and Mariam Faced, were, however, although all five were later acquitted. Again fast forward several years, this time to March 27, 1937, Easter Sunday. By this time, Mrs. Gedeon and Ronnie were living in an apartment at 316 East 50th Street, a few blocks south of their previous residence. They were still taking in boarders on occasion. Shortly before 3 o'clock that afternoon, Joseph Gedeon went over to his wife's apartment building, where he was soon joined by Ethel and her husband Joe. Though he was separated from his wife, he still maintained an at least somewhat friendly relationship, and the family was going to have Easter dinner together. But when he tried to call up to the room to be let in, he received no response. Eventually, another resident of the building left to go somewhere, and left the trio into the building. The Cudners waited downstairs while Mr. Gedeon went up to the apartment to see if anyone was home. When he got to the door of apartment 16, the door was hanging slightly ajar. He pushed on it and made his way inside. He passed from the living room, vacant except for Ronnie's dog cowering beneath a sofa, into the kitchen, and from there into Mary's bedroom. Still nothing. In fact, 
The bed was still made, and it didn't even look as if it had been slept in. Opening the door to the left, to Ronnie's bedroom, he discovered the body of his daughter lying nude on the bed, her face discolored and clear signs of strangulation. Then, in the other tiny bedroom used by boarders, he found the body of Frank Burns, an Englishman who had been staying in the apartment, lying on his side. His head and neck were covered with blood. By this time, Joe and Ethel had come upstairs to see what was taking so long, and Ethel's father told the two what had happened. But where was Mary? Gedeon thought that perhaps she had discovered the others dead and had gone to get the police. Joseph ran out to go over to the 17th Precinct Station on East 51st Street to check. But she hadn't been there. The first detectives on the scene were Martin Owens and William Gilmartin, and it was Detective Gilmartin who discovered that the body of Mary Gedeon had been shoved underneath the bed on which Ronnie's body lay. She was fully clothed, although her underwear had been torn off. At this time, another detachment of police officers and officials descended on the Gedeon apartment. Detectives Charlie McGowan, Tony Fader, Rudy McLaughlin, and Tom Tunney, Deputy Chief Frank Keir, Assistant Chief Inspector John Lyons, and Assistant District Attorney Francis P. Morrow, as well as Thomas Gonzalez, the medical examiner. The detectives combed the apartment for clues as all surfaces were checked for fingerprints, with clear prints being lifted from a mirror in the bathroom and the pillowcase in Burns' room. Also in a corner of the room where the body of Frank Burns was discovered, they found a gray suede leather glove. Most of Ronnie's clothing was found in the bathroom, where they also discovered a bloody towel tossed into the bathtub. In Mary's bedroom, the untouched one, they found fragments of what appeared to be soap. Some mud was found on the fire escape outside the room of Border Frank Burns, and while it was at first believed that that might have been how the murderer entered the apartment, it was later found that it was merely some soil that had dripped down from the drainage holes on the bottom of a flower pot sitting on the level above. A man named Cosmo Cambinius, another resident of the same apartment building where the, where the Gedeons lived, said that at about 11 p.m. the night before, he had heard, quote, a scream and the sound of a scuffle. He looked out the window, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. After a while, hearing nothing more, he dismissed it as imagination. Another resident, by the name of Charles Robinson, told police an eerie story of something that had taken place early on the morning of March 27th. I got home about a quarter past two this morning, and when I got up as far as the fourth floor, I noticed that the door to the Gedeon apartment was open. As I passed it on my way up to my own place, I noticed the door was closing gradually, as if somebody was behind it, pushing it. I don't know, there was something about the way the door started to close that gave me the creeps, and I beat it to the sixth floor as fast as I could. Almost immediately upon the murders becoming public knowledge, they were almost universally seen as resulting from Ronnie's lifestyle. Nearly everyone, police included, thought that the murderer had to be some former suitor of Ronnie's, or someone obsessed with her, or connected with her in some way. Not until several days later was it at all considered that the other two victims might, might at all be integral to this triple slaying. I've often thought that in many ways, it was almost the perfect crime for the sensationalist press of the day. Not only did they have another murder to write about, one with all sorts of salacious underpinnings, but nearly every account of the crime was accompanied by some photograph of Ronnie, 
scantily clad, in one of her photo shoots for the te- detective magazines. Walter Winchell, a New York gossip columnist, intimated that Ronnie had recently had an abortion. These generalizations led Wes Peterson, editor of Inside Detective, one of the magazines Ronnie had worked for, to release a statement attempting to salvage her reputation. She was, he said, decent in every sense of the word, an honest girl from a family in strange circumstances, who was trying to earn her own living with the natural talents with which she was endowed. She was not cheap. She did not sleep with men so they would give her money. Had she not chosen to be a photographer's and illustrator's model, she might have been another stenographer, a salesgirl, or a nurse. She had the intelligence to succeed in any of these callings. A racist demagogue at the time, a Reverend Gerald L.K. Smith, had his own theories on the cause of the murder. I charge that the crime which was committed on 50th Street in Manhattan was committed by a sex-mad maniac, part of the atheistic communist lawlessness which is gnawing at our social structure. When the bodies were examined in detail by Dr. Gonzalez, he determined that all three had died between 7 p.m. Saturday evening and 4 a.m. Sunday morning. As to the cause of death, Mrs. Gedeon and Ronnie, unsurprisingly, had been strangled. Frank Burns had been stabbed 11 times at the base of the skull with some sort of long, narrow instrument, similar to an ice pick. Despite the fact that Mrs. Gedeon's underwear had been torn off, that Ronnie's body was nude, and that there were signs that Ronnie had recently had sex, there was no evidence that the women had been sexually assaulted. His full report, which states that Mrs. Gedeon was assaulted, although she wasn't, although, to be fair, so-called criminal assault didn't always refer to rape, stated that Burns was the first victim slain as he slept. Subsequently, Mrs. Gedeon returned home. The killer had apparently been lying in wait for her. As she entered the house, she was attacked, dragged into the bedroom, and criminally assaulted. The strangulation and assault were apparently simultaneous. The body was pushed under the single bed in the room adjoining the master bedroom. When Miss Gedeon came home, she apparently stepped into the bathroom to the left of the entrance and partially disrobed. Evidently, she did not want to awaken her mother. Leaving her clothes on the hamper in the bathroom, she then walked across the living room. As she entered the other bedroom, the murderer attacked her. The girl was clad only in her chemise. This was ripped off during the violent struggle. It seems the killer must have begun strangling the model immediately. After the murder... The body was dragged to the small chamber adjoining the large bedroom and dumped on the single bed. Then the killer opened the front door and slunk off into the night. As early as the beginning of April, Frank Burns was already being called, quote, a forgotten figure in the maniacal crime. A man named Adrian Gregory, who had worked with Burns at the racket and tennis club on Park Avenue, said that he had come to the United States in 1924. Originally from Liverpool, It was said that he had been a bartender and a butler for a Park Avenue millionaire. He was deaf in one ear, and other than these few facts, nothing is known of him. Inspector Keir said that the the crime was, in his opinion, definitely not a robbery. Nothing, so far as we could find, had been disturbed. Not even a lamp was out of place. On March 28th, however, a a model named Lucy Biacco who had been staying in the bedroom where the two women's bodies were found, but had been in North Adams, Massachusetts for the weekend, 
was taken to the crime scene. She said that an alarm clock she had sitting on the bureau was missing. It was, a, it was cheap, an unusual item to steal when there were valuables in the home. Hello friends, my name is Michael Patrick and I'm the host of the Monsters and Friends podcast. Each week, my Bigfoot friend Barry and I fire up our trusty Winnebago and we travel the United States in search of cryptids, legends, and lore. However, we're not looking for any old cryptid, legend, and lore. We want to introduce you to some of the monsters of the world that don't get the same spotlight as Barry's cousin Bigfoot. Did you know that in Ireland, there's an eight-foot murderous otter? Or in the Mongolian desert, there's a worm that can kill you. Instantly. Come with Barry and I each and every week as we travel the United States in search of interesting monsters and stories. Once we find them, we usually find a good spot to camp, sit around the campfire, sip on warm cider, and chat about life, or sometimes butterflies. We'd love for you to join us each and every week and learn about the amazing things and stories that we discover. You can find the Monsters and Friends podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll chat again real soon. As soon as the murders had been discovered and the crime scene investigated, police began the laborious process of running down and interrogating all the 150 names listed in Ronnie's address book, as well as many of Gideon's former boarders as they could find. However, by March 29th, Assistant District Attorney Morrow stated that they had, quote, eliminated all but two or three persons from the investigation. The first person they questioned was Stephen Butter who had called while the police were still at the apartment gathering clues. A short time later, Inspector Lyons and Commissioner Louis Valentine were questioning the car. Butter was 23 and worked as a messenger on Wall Street. He said that one of his friends, Lincoln Hauser, was Ronnie's boyfriend and, according to some sources, her fiancé. He had gone upstate for the weekend and asked Butter to keep an eye on Ronnie over the weekend. The night before, they had had dinner at his place, along with Frank Schlenner and Ronnie's friend Gene Karp. At two in the morning, Schlenner left. Karp had already gone home. She had initially been planning on staying the night at the Gideon home, but she had decided against it since she wasn't feeling well. The newspapers were later to say that she had likely narrowly avoided death. At any rate, after Schlenner had gone... Butter and Ronnie went out to a bar and had a few drinks, and then he dropped her off at her home around 3, saying that he was going to take her to church the next morning. But no one answered when he showed up at the Gideon house that day, and then after that, he periodically called the house. Lincoln Hauser, Frank Schlenner, and Gene Karp were all questioned as well, and they all confirmed the story told by Stephen Butter. Also questioned by police was Bobby Flower, Ronnie's ex-husband. A hot dog vendor at a bowling alley, he was likewise at at a loss to explain what might have happened to his former wife, who he maintained a good relationship with, 
but who he said he hadn't seen in a few weeks. When we got married, she was just a kid. I guess neither of us knew what it was all about. We get along fairly well, but I guess she just didn't want to be tied down. She wanted good times and going places, and I just didn't have the money. After a while, we talked things over and decided our marriage wasn't a go. Ronnie sued for annulment on the grounds that she was a minor at the time of our marriage. We stayed good friends and tried to see each other once in a while. His bafflement at the situation soon gave way to anger, though, when he stated, quote, I hope they find the son of a bitch who did this and send him to the chair. Next, they questioned Cirilla Bell, another model and friend of Ronnie's who had performed with her at the, at the infamous 1935 party, but who could likewise shed no light on the situation. Things were momentarily looking up when a man named George Guerret, also known as Frenchy, was questioned. Guerret, a Parisian-born chauffeur, roomed with the Gettians when they lived on 53rd Street. It was soon discovered that he had a criminal past, having been arrested for larceny several times. Detectives Frank Crimmins and John Kaiser found some bloody handkerchiefs at Guerre's rooms at 201 East 50th Street, and Gene Carp had told police while he roomed with the Gettians he had acted sort of creepy towards Ronnie. He told police he had, he had been at the home of a friend named Charles McCora over the Easter weekend, and when McCora's rooms at 987 2nd Avenue were visited, suspicions were strengthened when they found several ice picks coated with what appeared to be blood. Guerret and McCora were both questioned, but the bloody ice picks turned out to be only rusty, and the bloody handkerchiefs at Guerret's were explained as having been from a nosebleed, which was confirmed by his current landlady, Ella Peterson. Still talking, still speaking with a thick French accent, even after he had been in the United States for years, he offered his ideas on the killer, however. I tell you, Mama Gedeon was a very stingy woman. Somebody killed her for her money. The other two were killed because they see or hear something. Police questioned a man named James Fitton, who had formerly been an appraiser with the homeowner's loan corporation. In 1935, while living on 53rd Street, Mary Gedeon had applied for a home loan in order to make repairs. Fitton attempted to solicit a bribe out of Mrs. Gedeon. She refused, and was a major witness in getting Fitton jailed for three months. It was said that other prisoners in jail had heard Fitton threatening to murder the woman, but it turned out it wasn't him either. Also questioned were a hospital intern said to be in love with Ronnie, a singer at a nightclub that Ronnie had worked at, a college student she had dated, and another Hungarian named John Patton Eilis, supposedly an ex-boyfriend of Mrs. Gedeon. Police also followed up on rumors that there was an ex-con missing from his home in the neighborhood of the murder scene, and also on Mrs. Gedeon's own criminal past. She had allegedly run an illegal speakeasy while they were living on 53rd Street. They also fielded a theory that the murders were committed by a man and a woman, but Inspector Lyons said that they were up against a stone wall. We are simply groping in the dark, hoping something will turn up. The funeral for the three murder victims was held on April 1st, with a funeral attended by Joseph Gedeon, Joe and Ethel Kudner, Gene Carp, Bobby Flower, Stephen Butter, and Cirilla Bell, as well as members of the public. The two Gedeons were buried at St. Mary's Cemetery in Yonkers, and Frank Burns was buried at St. John's Cemetery in Queens. From directly after the murders were discovered, 
police had grilled Joseph Gedeon, who offered an alibi that he had been at Corrigan's bar playing skee-ball all night, an alibi which eventually checked out. Nearly 12 hours later, he was released and went promptly to his upholstery shop at 215 East 34th Street. Here he threw himself into work. At around 8 a.m. the next morning, a group of detectives led by Captain Frank Curry, bearing a search warrant, returned to the shop. They searched the shop and took a, took a set of upholstery needles, to which Gedeon replied, How am I supposed to get any work done without my tools? Gedeon then went to a friend's apartment to drink. At 1.30 on the afternoon of March 28th, a drunk Joseph Gedeon returned to the shop and spoke at length with reporters who had gathered outside the door. He questioned why the police had taken his fingerprints and extracted some material from under his fingernails. He had had some postcards of nude women in his pocket at the time he discovered the bodies. When questioned as to why they were there, his reply was, Why shouldn't I have them? I'm a grown man, and it's alright to have them with me. When one detective called him a liar, he said, he called the detective a liar in return, and said, I suppose if I took off my glasses, you'd hit me. Well, I'd hit you right back. The reporters noted that Gedeon's demeanor seemed odd. The New York Evening Journal wrote on March 30, 1937, Gedeon's reaction to the tragedy is impersonal, detached. He is as ready to talk about his bowling score on the night of the killing as he is to talk about the deaths of his wife and Ronnie. He seems more concerned with the disappearance of his gray hat than with the loss of his loved ones. And, indeed, the upholsterer was making incriminating statements. About his daughter, he stated, Ronnie was wild and willful. She made suckers out of lots of men. Believe me, I know how she was. She would lead a guy right on, right up to the point of whatever you want to call it, and then give him the horse laugh. She would tease men that way. Maybe she did that to some guy and got him so worked up and nuts that he killed her for it. Girls like Ronnie don't realize that you can't treat a man that way. When asked whether the murderer could have been a suitor of his wife's, I don't think my wife would be attractive to other men. She was a very cold woman, the coldest I ever knew, but there's no accounting for taste. All that day, he was hounded and followed by both reporters and police. He ran from bars to get away from them. He ran home and locked himself in his shop. Reporters yelled in at him that his alibi was no longer so ironclad. That Cal Parlapiano, who had seen Gedeon at Corrigan's, now said he only saw him when he came in to work at 7pm, and when he left at midnight, he couldn't swear to anything else. That evening, there was a brawl at the Beekman Tavern at 2nd Avenue and 50th Street. Gedeon was there drinking when a reporter named John Reedy snapped pictures of him. Gedeon threw his drink at him and then followed it with a glass. In the fight, the little upholsterer's glasses came off and were broken. Two police came and escorted Joseph Gedeon home, and at his shop, once again confronted with a gaggle of reporters, he did a throat-slitting finger motion at them and locked the door. A few hours later, Detective Sidney Letcher re reappeared and brought Gedeon back in for more questioning. As it was said by the police of their suspicions about Joseph Gedeon, It was evident from the first that whoever committed these murders not only was familiar with the layout of the Gedeon apartment, but was also a frequent visitor. This was indicated by the actions of the Gedeon Pekingese dog, Tucci, which made no disturbance during the time of the killings, 
but on arrival, the detectives ran about barking and trying to bite everyone. Gedeon was very friendly with his daughter, Mrs. Ethel Kudner, a friendliness that was entirely absent in his attitude toward his wife and his daughter, Ronnie. Mrs. Kudner agreed with the old man and did not approve of a life which her sister was leading and the fact that her mother allowed her to do so. This was Gedeon's attitude, though he continued to visit his wife occasionally. The police said there were rumors that Mrs. Gedeon and Frank Burns had a relationship that transcended the conventional one of landlady and tenant, and that Gedeon killed his wife and Burns in a fit of jealousy and added Ronnie because his disapproval of her way of life amounted to a fixation. As the newspapers described him, he's thin, scrawny, almost shrunken, looks as though a stiff breeze would blow him apart. Yet he hasn't slept for three nights, has withstood 24 straight hours of ceaseless questioning, and is ready for more. He's erratic, a fantastic combination of braggadocio and concern. He's been drinking beer, bowling, answering questions, giving interviews, quarreling with cameramen, and leading chases through the east side since he discovered the murder trio in the Beekman Hill apartment last Sunday morning. But Captain William T. Reynolds said, Don't let this appearance fool you. He delights in flexing his biceps and showing off the strength in his arms. He bowled seven straight games the other night with a 16-pound ball and wasn't even tired. At 55, that's a stunt. During this second round of questioning, Inspector Frank Keir told Gideon that, Considering your wife and daughter have been horribly killed, you've shown little grief. Gideon replied, I'm always that way. Things hurt me deep, but inside. When asked whether he loved his wife, he replied, She was an ignorant woman. She didn't know how to bring up her children. But I wouldn't kill her. And despite all his incriminating statements, he maintained, You're making a terrible mistake. I didn't do it. I wouldn't kill my family. It was said that one of the upholstery needles was missing, something which I suppose could be questioned as they had already been confiscated by the police. I wonder how much of the suspicion heaped upon Joseph Gideon results from the coincidence that like John Fiorenza, slayer of Nancy Titterton about a year before in the same neighborhood, he was also an upholsterer. Even the sewers near the apartment building in which the murders were committed were combed for the missing needle. A gun was also found in Gideon's room. It was eventually found, however, that the fingerprints retrieved from the apartment did not match his, and he was cleared of involvement in the deaths of his family. However, Captain Reynolds eventually conceded, The only real discrepancy in Gideon's story is his insistence that he wore a gray suit Saturday night when he was drinking at Corrigan's Bar and Grill, while witnesses who saw him say he had on a brown suit. We can't find the brown suit, and Gideon says he doesn't remember what happened to it. Gideon confessed to possession of an illegal firearm and was tried, but after revelations of the harsh treatment he had received at the hands of police during his questioning, and that they were trying to railroad him into being found guilty, he was acquitted. Many entries in Ronnie's diary referred to someone called B. Although early on, this evidently referred to Bobby Flower, given the context in which it's used, it also apparently referred to a second individual. One read, I'm afraid of B. He has been hanging around the house since Ethel handed him a large dose of ozone. Another, 
said the mysterious bee, is out of his head. The identity of this bee was learned when Ethel was questioned. The same name came up when, while following up on former borders, police had contacted Chief U.S. Grant of Potsdam and St. Lawrence County on the extreme north of the state on the Canadian border. They were following up on the movements of one former border who had been last known to be at school in that county. What they learned from Chief Grant, as well as Ethel Kudner, convinced them they needed to follow up on the individual, and Lieutenant Thomas Martin said they were, quote, very anxious to question the former border. His name was Robert Irwin. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. Though, due to um, problems with the file this week, it's not all of the sources I used, but some of them are there. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.